Uh, If you have Bibles, you can turn them to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be reading the first eight verses, which I think Blaine read from at the beginning of the service. If you don't have a Bible because you've been conditioned by the powers that be to read off of the screen behind me, the powers that be will gladly oblige you. So everybody's going to be... But if you're old-fashioned, it's Matthew chapter 17. This Sunday is uh, known as Transfiguration Sunday. Let me hear you say Transfiguration Sunday. And it's a pivot point between the season that we've just culminated here, Epiphany, and the beginning of Lent. During the season of Epiphany, you might know, what Jesus has been doing and what the church celebrates is all the many ways in which Jesus sort of unveils himself in his identity to the people that are around him. And so he does this through his teachings. He does this through miracles. He does this through all the little works that he does. He has all these different ways of sort of disclosing himself. And then we come to this sort of decisive moment. It's really a pivot point in the ministry of Jesus where he's taken his disciples aside and he's essentially said to them, "Uh, hey, guys, um, there's something that you need to know about my ministry. Uh, It's not just going to be all of this healing and wonderful stuff forever. Uh, I'm going to die. You're going to be scattered. And all of our hopes and dreams are going to be shattered. Are you with me on this? Everybody good? Are we good here? Okay. And they obviously freak out about this. You might remember that Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. And then Jesus turns around to Peter and says, get by me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. It's like this whole big thing. And then we come to this moment, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus just on the other side of that prediction that there's going to be this sort of great unmaking to come shows them in a deeper way than they've ever seen before just who he is and what he's like. And it's this vision of Christ the Lord unveiled before them that guides them through the next days and weeks ahead, which are going to be very, very horrible days and weeks. In much the same way, I think that the church takes this text and it fixes it at this pivot point as we get ready to head into Lent as a way of saying this season is a season of house cleaning and self-examination and in many ways an unmaking. And unless you have this sort of vision of Christ the Lord in front of you, it's easy to get lost during seasons like this. So it becomes a very pivotal and important text. What I'm going to do here this morning is read from it, uh, talk to you for a minute about why I think it's important, and then what I want to do is just give you four sort of pathways for thinking about what it might look like for us to encounter afresh the living Christ as we start moving into the Lenten season. So we begin, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 1. After six days, this is right after Jesus' prediction that he will die, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, so kind of the close circle of friends, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Pretty radical experience. The second person of the Trinity, God of very God, begins to peel back the curtain of reality on who he is, and they begin to see his sort of pre-existent, transcendent glory bleed through into time. And just then, Matthew says, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah with Jesus. This, by the way, is one of the things that I love about the Bible. It just says stuff like this. And we go, oh, really? This can happen in God's world? (laughs) All right. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. By the way, what he's doing, the Greek word here for shelters is skene, 
Uh, it might be something like tabernacle, actually. What Peter is doing is he sees these great, you know, like, Jesus, we just really loved you. And then all of a sudden Moses and Elijah show up. Like, these are superheroes for us. So what we'll do is we'll set up these tabernacles, and this is pretty awesome, and this will be our new religious shrine, and we'll charge people 10 bucks a head to get up here. And this is, like, this is sweet marketing opportunity here. We're going to put up tabernacles. And while Peter is in the middle of all of this blubbering, verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. So the experience goes from crazy to really crazy. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. Let's take a moment and pray. Gracious God, the scripture opens with you speaking. And your speech is not some empty blathering into some sort of vacancy, but your speech is creative. When you talk, things happen, things come alive. Death is defeated, chaos is overcome, and all sorts of good and beautiful things begin to spill into the human experience. God, when you speak, things come alive. And we... Whether we know it or not, we long for the voice of God. We long to be encountered by the God who loves us and believes in us and wants the best for us. And we are desperate that somehow his voice would resound in a way that causes our own humanness to come to life. So we're praying that somehow as we open these scriptures this morning and as we talk about them and think about these matters, we pray that the voice of Jesus would resound to us and that we would find ourselves drawing near to the one about whom the voice bellers from the clouds. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. We pray that we would find ourselves listening to the voice of Christ Jesus afresh this morning. Grant it, we pray, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said... Why is this particular moment important for these disciples? When Jesus begins to sort of unveil his glory before them, the two great figures show up, Moses and Elijah. And for these people, the Jewish people, these brothers that are sort of gathered up on the mountain, they see Moses and Elijah, and instantly they're thinking about the law and the prophets, the great holy books books of the Hebrew scriptures, in which God spoke to his people and guided them into life. What we begin to learn, though, through this narrative is that as much as, first of all, there's no antagonism between Jesus and Moses and Elijah, right? So there's no, like, Jesus going, you know, that stuff that you guys were talking about, that's bad stuff over there. You know, there's, there's like, none of that. But at the same time, there is, after all is said and done, these figures of Moses and Elijah recede into the background, and the one figure that's left, the one voice that's left, is the voice of the living Christ. And what the church understood about Jesus was that everything that had come before him in a very important way was fragmentary and partial and incomplete. Elijah is this guy who knows God intimately, a prophet who speaks for God. But Moses only catches glimpses of God. 
He only sees pieces of God. He doesn't see the full thing. And when he speaks, because he does see something of God, he speaks with a measure of authority, but it's not the full authority that he could speak with. And similarly with Moses, you might remember that Moses has this beautiful and interesting relationship with Yahweh where the scripture says that he speaks with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Yet that same text will tell us that when God passes by Moses, he says, you must not see my face. I'm only going to show you my back. My face must not be seen. In the human experience, up to the point of Jesus, there had always been inherent limitations in what people knew and could see of God. Moses is this guy who has this relationship with God that's more intimate, apparently as the scripture portrays it, than anybody had ever had, and yet it's limited. Moses is not permitted to see the face of God. God can see his face, and they speak to one another in that way. But Moses doesn't get to see God's face. In a way, we might say that Moses doesn't get to see where God is or where God is going. He only gets to see where God was. He sees his back, the train of his robe. And there is a yet, there is a fuller revelation yet to come. And so when we come to Jesus, we're encountering a person who speaks from an entirely different vision of God. Listen to the words of John, famous words. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. With God. The Greek word there is the word pros. Let me hear you say pros. What it means, it's a spatial sort of preposition. It doesn't just mean with. It almost means something more like facing, to, or towards. The word was facing God. He was with God in the beginning. No one, he goes on to say in verse 18 of John chapter 1, no one, he says, has ever seen God. Nobody's ever seen God. The God who is high and unapproachable and lives in a light beyond light, a transcendence beyond transcendence. John says, nobody has ever seen this God. And yet, God the one and only, Christ the Lord, who is at the Father's side, or more literally, he is in the bosom of the Father. Is how the Greek actually reads. That you get this picture of Jesus and his Father forever locked in this sort of mutual embrace with each other, delighting fully in each other's face. There's this joy, there's this explosive delight that they have for one another. John says that God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side or in the womb of the Father, in the bosom of the Father, has made him known. Jesus sees God and he sees God's will for humanity in a way that nobody else has ever been able to see. Thus, this story plays a pivotal, pivotal role in the church's life. That the cry that rings down from the church throughout history is, this is God's beloved son. This is the one in whom all of the promises of God are yes and amen. This is the one who can show us the way to life. Listen to him. Pope Benedict XVI in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, put it this way. He wrote, the last prophet, the new Moses, Christ Jesus, will be granted what was refused to the first one, a real, immediate vision of the face of God, and thus the ability to speak entirely from seeing. The disciple who walks with Jesus is thus caught up with him into communion with God. Next slide. And this is what redemption means. Now listen to this. This stepping beyond the limits of human nature which had been there as a possibility and an expectation in man, next slide, who is God's image and likeness since the moment of creation. What Benedict is saying is that as the church 
as human beings everywhere, attend to the voice of Christ the Lord, who speaks from a place of authority that is not, you know, you actually remember this in the ministry of Jesus, that he'll go around and he'll give some teaching and everybody kind of goes, they sort of step back and they go, well, this is a new teaching and with authority. They go, he's not, it's not like these other guys, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who when they speak, they're speaking about somebody else's experience. And all of the sort of extrapolation and theological dialogue that's come from that, they're sort of having to piece together their case. Jesus doesn't have to do that. He just says, you know, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I'm telling you right now, this is the way that it is. In the same way that when you have some dramatic experience of something, you don't need to reference somebody else. It's just, let me tell you what this is like. Some, some experience that you have with your husband or your wife, or you go to the Grand Canyon or visit some new country, you've seen it with your own eyes. And so the way that you talk about it is different. So Jesus, he speaks from this place of intimate knowledge of God. He has this authority. And what Benedict is saying is that as human beings attend to him, what happens is the boundaries of their humanity are broken open. They stretch out beyond the limits of their sort of inherent human nature, and everything in them begins to come to life in ways that they did not think were possible ahead of time. Those of you that have walked with Jesus for any length of time, you know this, that there's something about your attention to the living Christ over time that causes a sort of shattering and opening up. You find that your humanity, which was this very closed and limited possibility, all of a sudden it starts becoming, as you grow with him, you become more expansive. There's a greater flexibility, a greater freedom, a greater sense of spaciousness in God and within yourself. That is what Christ Jesus provides to us. And the reason that we head into seasons like the season that we're heading into now, the season of Lent, is because the church knows that the best thing that it can do at any given moment of, his li- of its life is pay attention to Jesus. Listen to him. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay, very good. Thank you, Sunday morning, 11 o'clock. All right, now let me give you four ways, four primary ways that I think that we attend to the voice of Christ Jesus and thus experience a sort of expansion of our humanity. Place number one, it's on the slide behind me, the Gospels. The Gospels. Now, it should almost um, go without saying, but I think that it needs to be said, that um, I think that the primary, one of the primary ways that disciples of Jesus attend the voice of the living Christ is by encountering him in the text of Scripture. Now, when I was growing up, the way that we, the whole way that almost we thought about Christian spirituality was exclusively uh, read your Bible and pray every day. And so we had the song that we learned in children's church. Maybe you learned it when you were little. It was read your Bible and pray every day. You love this song, don't you? Like everything in you just is like pray every day. You pray every day and you read your Bible and pray every day and you'll... That's right. You just grow, grow, grow. That's the way that it's going to work. You just read your Bible and pray every day. And, and I think that that's true. What's happened in me over the years is that I've started to incorporate other practices, spiritual practices that help round that whole picture out. But there was this, I think that a lot of us, because we had that, because the whole exclusive focus was on read your Bible and pray every day, we sort of started to distance ourselves from that. And I don't know, you know, the Bible is, it's a confusing book, you know, and some of the stories seem to be kind of contradictory and this, that, and the other thing. And so I just don't know if I'm going to read the Bible so much everywhere. I've found other ways, you know, to practice my spirituality. I'm practicing uh, you know, yoga and, and Ignatian spirituality. And I like to just go out in nature and like, and breathe. And I just feel so close to God and all of that. And, and in the midst of that, I think that sometimes this, 
focus on Scripture as the source and the center of where the church and where we as the people of God derive our image of Jesus, an image, by the way, that is constantly jarring and inspiring, uh, our sense that we get our image of Jesus from there, I think, can be lost, and that this is a fountainhead of spirituality for us. This conviction about this really started to harden in me when I was, uh, when I was young. My mom is this lady who, as long as I can remember, has always like woken up at an hour when human beings should not be awake, like 4 a.m. My mom just about every day would uh, wake up and she'd put on this like nightgown thing that had this hood on so she'd look like this. Wandering around in the dark, she just looked like this sort of Wisconsin uh, middle-aged female nun, you know, and monk woman or whatever, you know, just like this whole like garb. And so she'd go downstairs and she would make her coffee and get herself ready and then she would just sit at the kitchen table in low light and she would just pour over these scriptures. And I remember as a young boy, I'd walk down sometimes from my bedroom, you know, you'd wake up at like 5 or 5.30 and you're thirsty and I'd come to get a drink of water and you'd sort of stumble into this, you know, mom is, mom is awake and you'd see her just there and she just looked the part too, you know, with the hood over and she's pouring over the scriptures. It's just this sort of image of holiness. But even in that, like I just knew, like something in me intuitively knew that what my mom was doing was not trying to learn more truths about Jesus. It wasn't like that. It was like this, as she read it, as she immersed herself in it, that somehow it was the person of Christ Jesus who was coming at her through the words of the Scripture. It wasn't about learning some abstract ideas about Jesus and then trying to, you know, how do we apply these to our everyday life? You know, it's such stupid stuff we talk about. But it's, it was like, he, he is here. And as we read through these pages and I hear these stories and I listen to his teaching, that somehow I find myself being drawn into his life. And as I got older and I started, I, like it, I started to see that like my mom was the person in my life that I knew that was consistently like the most joyful, the most full of love, the most full of peace, the most full of a sense of tranquility, the most like full of wisdom. And it was like obvious to me that those things were intimately connected that, that it was her perpetual and daily encounter with this startling, jarring, beautiful figure of Jesus that caused, it was like this fertile soil for her spirituality to emerge. And as I've gotten older, what I've learned is that as much as, like this is what I like to say, um, this is the way that I've been saying it lately, is that the Bible is not the center of the church's life. Now in a place like Tulsa, Oklahoma, the statement like that doesn't go over very well. I mean, it's like, are you heretical or what are you? The Bible is not the center of the person of the church's life, but it's pretty darn close. God is the center of the church's life. This is the fundamental attestation that we have to this God. And there's something about, I mean, Paul says that these words have like a mystical quality. He says that all scripture is God breathed. Then it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness and all of that business. That somehow when we come to this, what we are coming to, it becomes a sacrament to us of the living Christ, the voice of the living Christ himself. Are you with me? And that's why I think that this must occupy some central place for us. Because apart from the text of Scripture, Jesus for us, we wind up sort of lifting him up off of the pages of Scripture. And he has this mysterious way of sort of floating into this space that's much more domesticated than he actually is in Scripture. And there's the very real possibility for many of us that if we don't attend to him in Scripture, what happens to us is that Jesus becomes this symbol that just ratifies everything we already believed and wanted to do with our lives anyway. 
rather than the startling, jarring figure who's inviting us into a life beyond the lives that we've known. I'm constantly surprised at the figure of Jesus in the Gospels. I was just laughing about this with my staff. We were talking about this story recently and just how absurd it is that one of, in one moment in the Gospels you have Jesus, he's doing his thing, going around conducting some healing, and there's this woman, this Greek woman, who comes to him and says, Master, I have this daughter. She's suffering terribly from demon possession. Please come and put your hands on her, and she will live. And our expectation, you know, of Jesus is that he would, because Jesus has a halo, and he's just all very nice and pious and stuff, he would go, yes, indeed, you may be healed. You know, instead what he says is he says, first let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. (laughs) What? Jesus, like son of God, son of man, son of a gun. Who what kind of a thing is this to say? You know, and I don't know what you do with a story like that, but I like those stories. They make me go, he's kind of unusual. And then the story gets even more interesting, that you'd expect the woman to sort of meekly and passively and submissively go, okay, fine, yes, I'm a dog and all that. Instead, she goes, excuse me. This is a little bit of my paraphrase, by the way. Excuse me. Even the dog, she says, eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. In other words, are you serious? Like, it's not that big of a deal for you to drive the demon out of my daughter. So if it's not too much of an inconvenience for you, would you mind carrying through with the request? And Jesus goes, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. I don't know that that's the kind of story we would invent about Jesus if we just had him over here. But we come to these texts of Scripture, and they just, like, they jar us into a new awakened sense of reality. Like, if Jesus reveals God, if, if God is like this, then God apparently is influenceable. And there are times that we can get all up in God's grill about stuff. And apparently he doesn't mind that too much. He's actually kind of obliging as a deity. I don't know that we would have imagined that about God. I don't know if I would have imagined that I need to love my enemies Unless I had Jesus saying, you'd better love your enemies. And I don't know if I would have believed that my faith, as small and feeble and weak as it is, is somehow capable of moving mountains. Unless we'd had Jesus saying, you know, if you have faith, little tiny faith, all kinds of things can happen for you. I don't know that most of the things, most of the riches of what God wants to reveal to us, we would just make up on our own. I think that we have to see it in here. We have to find ways to immerse ourselves in the gospel story, number one. Number two, another pathway that I think we come into a sense of the voice of Christ Jesus that draws us into life is in the very call to life itself. The call to life itself. Now, for many of us, and when I say life, what I mean is capital L, life. The whole life that we have. And I think for God, there is no bifurcation. There's no dichotomy as there is for many of us between sort of spiritual life over here and then every other life that you have over here. You know, sort of your joys and, um, and the things that bring you delight and all that business. All of this is sort of worldly, secular, lower form of life. And then there's like this higher form of life. But for many of us, that's the way that we think about it. So our sense of spirituality, our sense of how we come into sort of an apprehension of who God is, is, okay, we have to commit ourselves to very spiritual practices, So I do just read my Bible a lot, and I need to pray, and I need to go to church. And then when those people at the church ask me for money, I need to give them money. 
And that's it. And that's how I will feel full of God. And then, of course, there's the rest of my life over here. And there's some things that make me happy, but I don't really know what that has to do with my spirituality. And I lived a lot of years like that. I try so hard in sort of the explicitly sacred spiritual space to find some kind of encounter with God. And sometimes that was really fleeting for me. But then I had all this other stuff in my life that made me feel joyful and alive. And I just didn't know how to connect that to my spirituality. Like for me, those things were sort of apart. Paul has this moment where him and one of his traveling companions, Barnabas, are in this city. They conduct a miracle. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. All the people there, all of a sudden they think that they're Greek gods, so they start trying to sacrifice to them. And Paul says this. He says, no, no, no. You men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he's not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and he fills your hearts with joy. Later on, he says to another group of people that in him you live and move and have your being. There is no joy. There is no love. There is no sense of delight or peace or elation or sense of transcendence that you have ever had that did not come directly from the hand of God and is not from him a gift for you to invite you into his limitless life. Are you hearing me? Those moments that you have when you're staring into the eyes of your husband and your wife and you're lost in that transcendent moment, I'm telling you that that's from God. And that's a core part of our spirituality. That moment that you have, you parents with your kids, where you look at them and you find yourself just awash in joy over their very existence, that is from God. Those hobbies that you have, that when you do them, you can lose yourself for hours on end and you feel a sense of coherence and your humanity at the core, that is from God. God. I think it's imperative for us that we break down the barrier between our sense of what is explicitly spiritual activity and what is so-called other activity, secular activity. There must be a breaking down of that wall or else we'll never experience life that God intends for. He intends to come to us in all of life. I remember when this started breaking down for me. I don't remember exactly what the catalyst was for it, but I used to, um, this was sometime during college, and I, you know, I was really um, devoted, as I still am, to spiritual disciplines, so Bible reading and prayer and all that. And I would wake up in the morning. I'd do a lot what my mom did. You know, I'd make the coffee, and then I'd start, like, reading my Bible. And so I'd make the coffee, and then, like, for me, like, the real meat and potatoes of the thing was reading the Bible, you know? So I'd sort of scratching at this and trying to get some kind of thing out of here. And then I've got my coffee, you know, and I just sort of guzzle that coffee down, you know? You know, but I'm trying to hear God speak to me, you know? And then all of a sudden, this shift started happening in me. And I'd like make the coffee in the morning. And instead of rushing through the experience of the coffee, I would just like sit there with it and experience the warmth of it in my hands and think, this it didn't have to be this way. You know, like there is an excess, there is a, a superfluousness and over-the-topness to life that doesn't have to be there. That God just gives. The feeling of warmth is a miraculous feeling. It's it's unbelievable. On a cold morning, to hold that cup in your hands, it does something to you. And I would find my heart as I'm holding this warm cup of coffee, and I'm I'm feeling my body come to life. I can feel my heart come to life in the presence of God. And I'd sit there, and I'd take just a small sip of it, and I'd actually taste it and think to myself, this strange black substance didn't have to be this way. 
It could have just been like, God did not have to make us with taste. It's not a biologically necessary thing, I don't think. I'm not a biologist, but I can, I can only assume you don't actually really need it. And at least if you need it, you don't need it in the full complexity that we have, and yet we have it. And we can taste the difference between different kinds of wine and coffee and all of this. And I just, like, drink it so slowly, enjoying every moment of it. And then I started realizing that all of the other things that I loved and delighted in, I, I loved running so much, the feeling of being fast, you know, and of having the wind blowing in your face and you're sort of free and out in the open. I love that feeling. And I began to connect that to my spirituality and all the other stuff that I loved, my music and my love for reading and my love for coffee shops and my love for really good conversation. When I started connecting that to my spirituality, it became intuitively obvious to me that what God desires from each one of us is that we just have the clear-headedness to go, wait a minute, hold on, time out. What are the things in my life that are making me miserable and breathing death? You know, like we have this, like in our age of social media, so many of you complain about how miserable your lives are. It's because you spend three hours a day in social media and you get lost in the internet haze, you know, and you like your life then is cluttered with this perfectly stupid activity that you hate intuitively. Stop. Just stop doing it. If it breathes death in you, stop doing it and think about the things that make you alive and think about the things that make your family better and think about the things that make your spirituality come to life and then do those things because they're not a step down from the actual meat and potatoes, the serious business that God wants you to be about. I think that they're at the core of it. The call to life, immerse yourself in it. I think that the voice of Christ Jesus can be found there. Third thing, and with this, it all gets a little bit more sticky, a little bit more demanding. I think that we come to an apprehension of the voice of Christ Jesus in fresh ways, ways that challenge the boundaries of ourself through the demand of our neighbor. The thing that I love so much about Christianity is that it does not allow us to set our relationship with God over here, our spirituality over here, and then we have sort of people <laughs> over here. It doesn't allow us to do that. So it won't allow us to sort of come into this space with God where we experience Him and it's just so wonderful and, and we're, you know, both whispering sweet nothings in each other's ears, this intimacy with God, you know, and then we go out and we just sort of treat people like dirt. We don't get to do that in Christianity. When Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment in the law, He gives two answers to it. Do you remember? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and... Love your neighbor as yourself. For Jesus, those two things go hand in hand. In fact, John will say in one of his epistles, he'll say that anybody who does not love his neighbor or his brother cannot love God. So it's not like you can just, no, no, trust me. My relationship with God is really good, but my relationship with people sucks. It just doesn't work that way. If your relationship with people is really good, your relationship with God is good. If your relationship with God is good, it goes hand in hand that your relationship with people will be good. Jesus says in another place, Matthew 25, you might remember the teaching. He's talking about the last judgment. And he says that at the final judgment, God will separate the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And to the sheep, he will say, come, you are blessed by my father into the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. You gave me, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was sick and in prison and you look after me. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was, I was naked. All of these things. And you did these things for me. And they're confused, right? They go, wait, wait, we didn't do any of those things to you. And he says, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you have done to me. There is a sacramental quality to the other, to our neighbors, to the least of these. 
to people around us. C.S. Lewis said it so brilliantly, brilliantly when he said that next to the blessed sacrament, your neighbor is the holiest thing that you will ever encounter. We have to grapple with this. When uh, we moved to Denver four and a half years ago, uh, Mandy had put me in charge of flying out there a few times to try to find a house. That was a lot of confidence that she put in me. And so I went around Denver and I found a place for us to live. And I thought it was a pretty good place and that it'd be okay for our family. And it turned out it was in a really crappy part of town. And I just didn't really realize it. I was just sort of oblivious to it. And the house was actually more sketchy than I thought. And so when Mandy walked into it for the first time, like she sobbed and kept sobbing for a while. And so <laughs> the poor girls had to put up with a lot. And But so we were living in this really kind of rough part of town. And one day I came home from a meeting and uh, I walk into the kitchen and I go, Hey babe, how you doing? You know? And she says, Hey, um, she goes, you might want to uh, go out into the alley. Cause I heard like a really, really weird sound out there this afternoon. The way that it worked is our garbage dump, like our garbage bin thing was in the alley. So you had to take the garbage out there, you know? And so like an alley is a thing that we have to deal with. You know, I'm from a place called Marshfield, Wisconsin. You don't really have these things, you know, alleys, scary alleys, you know? And so she goes, there's a sound out there. You need to go check in. And I go, what sound are we talking about here? Are we talking about the sound of animals, the sound of people, the sound of music? What are you talking about? You know? And she goes, it sounded like a dog was dying out there. Well, you know, this is even more ambiguous and terrible. Maybe he is dying. Maybe I go back there and maybe this dog mauls me to death. You know, like what is going to happen? I don't know. And so I walk out to the alley. I open the door and I look around the corner and there is this guy, this homeless guy sitting there in a puddle of his own vomit. Uh, it's 95 degrees, so it's bloody hot. And he's got a coat on. He's like sweating profusely. Hair is all scraggly. This beard that hasn't been shaved in forever. He's missing a whole bunch of teeth. I mean, this guy is just in the pit of life, you know? And in those days, uh, I had spent a few years sort of talking a big game about social justice, you know? Like, the church needs to care more for those who are on the underside of power, you know? And that was as much an attempt to absolve my own feelings of guilt about this as anything else. And so I walk out there and I see this guy, and now all of a sudden, like, it's like, all right, well, it's on now, Andrew. Now you have to, like, care for the least of these, and what are you going to do about that, you know? And so I look at it, and I don't know, they don't train you for this in seminary or anywhere else what to do in this kind of a situation. So I go, hi. <laughs> How are you? No, bad, bad question, you know. And I strike up a conversation with him and I find out about his life and I spend a couple minutes talking to him and I throw my garbage away or whatever and I go back into the house. And it's just so unnerving to me that this guy, and I found out that his name was Diamond Dave, you know, Diamond Dave, our homeless guy in the alley. And it's just so unnerving to me. Like, I don't know, is this guy like staking out our house? Is he casing the joint? Like, what is, what is he going to do? And Dave like never went, went away. He would just stay there all day long. He would panhandle on the side of the road during the day so that he'd get enough money to buy a bottle of Kentucky Deluxe bourbon, which then he would down. And then he would come and he would throw up in our alley and just lay there for the rest of the, that was Dave's life. And it got to the point, he just didn't go away. And I hated going out there so much. I have to take the garbage out, you know, and it got to the point that I'd start sort of looking through the fence, you know, like it's, oh, oh, he's there again, you know? And so I'd open the door and there's Dave and I'd have to get in a conversation with him. And it always just made me feel so awkward and uncomfortable. I remember one day I went out there and I asked Dave how he was doing. And he told me more of his life story. It was this absurd story, you know? And so I go, well, Dave, can I pray for you? You know? And he says, yes. And so I reach out my hands 
like this, you know, to pray for him just to make sure we've got an acceptable distance between us. And so I say a prayer over Dave and Dave looks up at me and he goes, thank you. And then these words came out of his mouth. He goes, can I pray for you? I I guess I've never been a man to refuse prayer, you know, so sure, fine. And Dave totally overcomes all of my distance. He wraps his arm around me and puts his face up next to mine and he starts praying for me. And again, I come from a place called central Wisconsin. Like they don't, this doesn't happen in places like this and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so Dave is praying over me, this incredibly sincere and heartfelt prayer. And the whole time I'm sitting there thinking to myself, God, please don't let him stab me to death. I don't know what's happening here. It just made me so awkward. But every interaction, though, that I had with Dave, what it did is it battered the edges of my sense of self. And it kept opening me up more and more to God and more and more to God's will for humanity. And I remember one day, and this is when so much just shifted for me. I remember going out there one day, taking the garbage out, and there I can see Dave. Great, I'm going to have an interaction with Dave. And the thought occurred to me that, um, like, I remember, this is how it came to me. I remember uh, we have four kids. We had three then. It was Ethan, our oldest, was three, and Gabe was two, and Bella was just a little tiny little bebop. And for some reason, I thought of Gabe. I just, Gabe was like my pathway into this. And I thought about how much Gabe was just this tender, little, super snuggly guy, you know? And I thought about how much I loved Gabe. And how much, to me, when I looked at Gabe, I saw the image of God. And when I looked at Gabe, I felt my heart just swelling with delight for him. Gabe, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's my own living flesh and blood in front of me. Gabe, aren't I loved him so much? And it started occurring to me that um, because I learned Dave's story and I learned that he had made a bunch of really unfortunate decisions in life that had led him to a place where him being in, in an alley drinking Kentucky Deluxe and throwing up every day were about the best that he could do with his life. See, a lot of us, we have this idea of people that are in unfortunate situations like this, that if they just sort of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and you need to apply yourself more, you can become a productive, contributing member of society. That's a joke for so many people. They are broken beyond any, any reasonable chance of becoming a productive member of society. And even more than that, some people are so broken that the idea of plugging into the help that they need in society, like homeless shelters and rehabilitation programs, they can't even do that. Dave sitting in the alley, smoking cigarettes and drinking bourbon is the best Dave is going to do in his life, probably. And I started thinking about Gabe and how much I loved Gabe and how if Gabe wound up making a bunch of really unfortunate decisions with his life and Gabe wound up in a place that was very similar to where Dave wound up, how would I want people to treat Gabe? And then it started occurring to me that in a really deep way, I'm not allowed as a Christian to separate my feelings about Gabe from my feelings for Dave. The writer of Hebrews has this really interesting thing that he says where he says, remember those who are mistreated. This is Hebrews chapter 13, 2 or 3. You can look it up later. He says, remember those who are mistreated. And then in the Greek he says, because you yourselves also have a body. There is a fundamental thing that we share 
with other human beings simply because we are all flesh and blood together and they are made in the image and the likeness of God. And it doesn't matter how much we trash our lives. It doesn't matter how much we ruin ourselves. It does not matter how badly we are acting. The image of God never goes away in human beings. It is always there. And the ethical obligation to care for the other, to attend to the other, to spend ourselves on behalf of those that are hurting or on behalf of those that it quite simply is just difficult for us to love, that's a core ethical obligation for Christians. You don't get to separate your love for God from your love for people. And as we approach the season of Lent, I think it's worth asking us the question, who are the people in my life that are the most difficult for me to love? See, what I've learned is that most of us want to run away from those relationships and those encounters. And that on the other side of that, the fear of that is the fear that we'll experience in some ways our own unmaking. If I press into this relationship that's gone haywire, if I press into this thing, then what is going to become of me? What I have found is that if you press into those hard relationships, those become sacraments. They become ways in which the very presence and the glory of the risen Christ is experienced. They expand your sense of self and they open you up to God in ways that you could not be open to God otherwise. The demand of the neighbor, I think, is crucial. And then I'll end with this one, the fourth one. And I think that this is perhaps the deepest and the most profound. I think that the place of struggle is a place where the voice of Christ Jesus is heard in surprising ways. Jesus in this text that we just read, he's speaking to his disciples and showing them his glory on the other side of his prediction that everything is going to be lost for them. You know, like we're about to go through this thing, guys, and your sense of meaning, your sense of purpose, your sense of security, all of that stuff is about to go out of the window. I'm going to be crucified. Hopes and dreams are going to be dashed. And yet, he says to them, I am with you in it. And God has something prepared for you and for me on the other side of this totally disorienting experience that would blow your mind if any of us had the chance to see it. For many of us, when we think of God being Emmanuel for us, God with us, what we think is, yeah, God is present for us and calling out to us in the nice places, when I'm on my jog, you know, when I'm reading the Bible and all that business. But the places of hardship, the places of struggle, the place where we feel as though our humanity is being undone, being torn to shreds, God's not in that stuff. That's just the devil. The devil is attacking my life. And the truth of the matter is that whatever influence of the enemy is in any experience of unmaking that we have, the intent of God is always deeper than anything the enemy brings against us. And there is this, what I have discovered, is there is this deep intentionality of God that sits underneath every difficult experience that we have to cause us to expand and rise up into all that God wants for us. Jesus puts it this way. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life in this world loses it. But the man who hates his life in this world keeps it for eternal life. Death is a central part of the Christian narrative. We don't get to experience life without death. We don't get to experience Easter without some form of Golgotha. It's just the way that it works. I remember being in my 20s and having this um, driven home to me in a really personal way. Um, I was 22, 23 in college, really struggling with some stuff. My life was not quite going the way that I wanted it to go. Just a season of really what for me felt like real hardship. 
And I was in the middle of a fast. It was a five or six day fast, one of the longer ones that I'd ever done. And uh, just seeking God and trying to figure out, God, what are you doing with my life in the middle of all of this business? Because it's just so hard and confusing, you know. And so I'm there just sort of pressing into God. And I was reading through Exodus and I was reading about the people of Israel coming out of um, Egypt and they wander around, you know, kind of in the wilderness for a while. And eventually they get to the promised land. And I had this commentary of some kind. And I just decided, well, I'm going to read and just find out more about this. And the commentator made this really interesting point. He said that technically, um, from a geographical standpoint, it would have only taken God like, a, it takes like 11 or 12 or 13 days on foot to go from Egypt to the promised land. And when God leads his people up, and that would have been easy enough to do, but when God leads his people up out of Egypt, the first place that they don't go is up into the promised land. The first place that they go is down into the Sinai Peninsula, Mount Sinai where God can essentially take this people and badger their old habits and their old sort of Egyptian ways, blow open their sense of self, give them a new sense of who they are in him so that they can actually inherit the land. And all of the stuff that they did wandering around in the wilderness, so much of that was to test them and to refine them and to bring them to a place where their humanness was just deeper, you know. And so I'm reading this, and I remember hearing the voice of God in my own heart say to me, Andrew, you have desired the end of this difficult season, the end of this trial, but I'm not done using it to change you. It was the first time I'd ever thought of pain in that way, that God might be using the difficult experiences of my life to try to change and transform me. And I remember the voice continuing, you need to let my spirit continue this work of you, in you so that your character will be able to sustain you in the places that your giftedness will take you. God has more for us than we have for ourselves. He longs for a sense of expansiveness. He longs for our lives to be fruitful and abundant. He longs for resurrection in us. He longs for Easter in us in every way. Yet the path that we must take to get there, there has to be some measure of unmaking. And when you go through, many of you are in incredibly difficult seasons right now. You have stuff in your life that you know that you need to face, relationships that have gone haywire, stuff inside your own, you know, you've got chronic perennial sort of psychological and emotional issues that you can't get past, or you started something and you're experiencing some measure of resistance to it and everything in you just wants to run away. That's what we do as human beings. We avoid pain. We're always seeking the easy way out. And I'm telling you, like, I don't know a single person whose life or sense of holiness or character I respect, who does not have at some deep, visceral, fundamental level this conviction that when things get hard, I don't run away, but I press in. You lean into the struggle. You lean into the pain. You lean into the hardship of it. And you find that somehow Christ the Lord is there, present and calling to us. As we begin the journey to Easter, this season of Lent, there's so much unmaking that has to happen. My encouragement to you, is lean into it because God is there. Jesus is there. The voice is there resounding to us and calling us and drawing us into deeper life. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Let's stand. God, we thank you for all that you are, for all that you mean to us, for all that you do. Your intent in our lives is to bring us to nothing less than a full conformity to the image of Christ Jesus. We have much unmaking that we must undergo to get there. We pray that in every conceivable way, we would find it within ourselves to be able to submit to that unmaking, to submit to the voice that comes to us and draws us into life.
So as we approach this season, our deep request of you, Lord God, is that you would use this season as you use all of our lives to transform us, change us, bring us into a deeper conformity with the image of Christ the Lord. All these things we ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.